Good morning. I'm Wendell Moses. I'm filling in for Tim this week. Tim's in Sofia, Bulgaria. I had to look on the map to figure out where that was. I'm sorry. I, my geography wasn't quite as good. So there's Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, the Ukraine. Okay. So if you go directly up from Greece, you get into Bulgaria. Sofia, where he is, is on the western portion of the country. It's the capital. And so, anyway, um, he's there. And um, thank you for coming. Um, let's bow our heads for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of talking about you. Be with us during this discussion. Send your spirit into this place. May we honor you with what we say and do. And help us that we may be right representatives of you and bring others to you. Amen. Okay, so we're lesson number three um, in family seasons, preparing for change. Um, the underlying premise of the lesson is that um, you can and should prepare for changes within the realm of family life. They cover essentially four events, marriage, parenting, I don't know if that's an event, but anyway, marriage, parenting, old age, and death. You know, they could have just as easily for family life chosen moving, career change, um, retirement, okay? So not all of us get married, not all of us are parents, okay? But, um, you know, these big events or big, big things that happen in family life that affect our families and whatnot. What do you think about when you hear the word prepared? Or preparing. Um, how can you prepare for change? Um, when do you know that you're prepared? Okay. Usually for me it's, yes. But, you know, when people find out that they're pregnant, they always want to paint the nursery and buy furniture and get everything ready, but they're never prepared, at least not for the first one. <laughs> Yeah. Um, they think they are, but they're not. <laughs> yeah. We were married for 17 years before we had kids. And then because I was a physician and whatnot, everyone assumed that I had all the answers, that I knew all about it before we got there. Right. If you get a group change, family change or whatever, you can say it's expected or unexpected changes. Okay. You go... Inevitable changes, you know, whatever. You can have planned or unplanned changes. You can have miraculous changes, okay? Um, you can have real events or situations. You can have unreal or imaginary events which you're planning for. I mean, who remembers Y2K? I mean, I had friends who dug wells and buried huge tanks of fuel in their yard and all sorts of strange things, you know, getting ready for Y2K. Um, uh, which types of change do you do best with? Or, conversely, worse with? You know, um, planned, unplanned, um, you know, um, is there a way of converting one type of change to another? Preparing. Preparing. 
What else? You change your hair time about the situation. For example, let's say somebody really hurts you. And then you come through prayer or understanding to realize that person was extremely hurt sometime, and now they're doomed to hurt other people that they come in contact with, and you happen to be one of them. So you see them in a more merciful light than you would have if you just saw the incident as a hurtful thing to you. You're talking about how I drive. <laughs> okay, I get in the car in the morning. I have 32 minutes to get to work, right? I mean, that's my budget, you know, it's just whatever. It, it can take shorter, but it cannot take longer. And um, someone gets in, in front of me on Igu Gap and goes 25 miles an hour in a 35 zone. You know? And my paradigm is of. Uh, yes. It's a character-building moment. <laughs> well, okay. I, I have gotten to the habit right now of every time that happens now, I said, thank you, Lord. I don't know why you sent this. And I'm not certain that he did. Okay? But thank you, Lord, that this is happening because it's building something. <laughs> you know, sometimes, it, as you say, I'll get past the drive. You know, I get up to um, Gun Barrel. And they are in the one lane and I'm in the other lane. And it turns out to be someone who is struggling to keep the car on the road. And it's like, I'm sorry, Lord. You know, you know, may, may I do as well if I'm struggling too. Okay. And so um, anyway, the paradigm changes. Yes. Um, you know, if you look up on Google, and let me go, go to Google um, and look up. Um, change or prepared for change I, the first hit was the 10 most ha- the 10 must have survival and preparedness books okay first two written by military the British military SAS survival guide ultimate guide of surviving anywhere number two the ultimate guide to US army survival skills tactic and techniques Three, the Prepper's Pocket Guide, 101 Easy Things You Can Do to Get Ready for Your Home for Disaster. When All Hell Breaks Loose, Stuff You Need to Survive When Disaster Strikes. Number five, Bushcraft 101, A Field Guide to the Art of Survival, and on and on. The Doomsday Book of Medicine. (laughs) Um, The Forager's Harvest, A Guide to Identifying Harvest and Preparing Edible Wild Plants. Um, Prepper's Instruction Manual, 50 Steps to Prepare for Any Disaster. You know, most of what, okay, this, this was the first thing that I got hit with, you know, on Google or whatever it was, the search engine. You know, most of the hits had to do with fear. Utilizing fear to try to get me to change my behavior or get me to spend money or to do whatever, okay? All had to do with fear. You know, I, in my practice, I, um, I'm a pediatric with each surgeon, and, and so I deal with various things, trauma as well as um, congenital defects and, and other issues, um, things that grow crooked. Um, this past week, I had a 47-year-old uh, gentleman in my office with his child. Now, most times, for whatever reason in our culture, children are taken to the doctor's office by their, by their female guardian or parent, okay? Mother, grandmother, whoever's taking care of them, okay? On occasion, it's a father, but not usual, etc. 
And so I, it puts me on edge a little bit, especially if it's a young father or middle-aged father. And um, it's like, is there something else I need to know about the situation? You know, is this, because sometimes I'm starting a treatment program that's going to take anywhere from one to six years. I need to know that everyone's on board. And if I only have one member of the package in my office, I need to know, is, is everyone agreeing to this thing? And so I happened to ask him, I said, you know, how, how, how are you doing? Um, you know, uh, are you the main caregiver? And he says, I am now. And um, he was 47 years old, was driving a semi-truck through a local metropolis that you'll recognize if I mentioned it. And um, he started feeling poorly, had to stop his 18-wheeler in the middle of the downtown city street and get carried off to the hospital with a heart attack. Sudden change to that family because now they don't have income, okay? And the dynamics of who takes care of child, who takes care of parent while medical procedures are going on and all sorts of stuff. This week also I had a mother and the child's grandmother in my office with the, the, the baby, and um, the child had a rare genetic defect, one in 30,000. And um, that mother was not expecting. When she was expecting, she was expecting a baby and we have our ideas of, you know, get the baby room ready and everything else. And when this child came, it was a totally different package. And so a portion of what I do is, you know, how are you adjusting to this change? What's going to happen? Who's going to take care of this child? You know, and here's the blueprint of what we're ha- up against over the next 10, 20 years. Um, roughly, I don't try to get too specific, otherwise we can't handle it all um, at once. You know, how do you adjust to something catastrophic change in your family? You know, the Bible does not give us good rules on, you know, marriage, parenting, old age, and death. It says things about this, but it's not really a rule book. You can find rules there if you look for them, but how to implement them is often not there. To me, it's a case book, not a code book. Okay? It's a group of stories of how people and related to God and God related to them and, and interacted, etc., and whatnot. Um... And so I was thinking, how did Jesus prepare his disciples for change? Was he successful at preparing them for change? So, um, you know, I listen to podcasts going back and forth to work. Um, Typically, I listen to, if I miss this class, I listen to this class. I listen to other sermons or whatever. There's a a um, podcast called Almost Heretical. And for a while, it was great. 
it was really scripturally based and whatnot. And recently been, they've been covering topics of heaven and hell, and they have gotten off into philosophy and everything else, and very little to do with scripture, what the scripture actually says about these two issues. Um, you know, and so I'd like to, from a scriptural basis, how did, how did God, how did Christ help these disciples get ready for change? Culturally, they were Jews, very strict Jews. Peter says, oh Lord, I haven't eaten anything unclean, don't make me, you know, etc. Culturally, they were they needed to change. Occupationally, all of them, all the disciples, you know, Matthew, tax collector, whatever, um, the zealot, you know, I don't know what he did for a living. What do you, how do you make a living being a zealot? But anyway, um, you know, how, do you, how did Christ get them ready for change? Um, he sent them out to practice what they would be doing in the future. Okay. He gave them instructions on what they were to do, how they were to go about both times, one time with, one time without, um, extra stuff, preparing them for what life would be like in the future, and coming back and, and debriefing them <laughs> and listening to them and giving them guidance, for, even though they didn't really know that they would be doing it without him. He was preparing them for it by practice. Okay. He also did it by example. And the total story is terrible. Okay. Um, we were just mentioning earlier that I had previously had brought research here that said that information does not change behavior. Okay. And, um, but he did give them information. Now, in Matthew 20, if you want to look it up, Matthew 20, 17 through 19, on the way to Jerusalem for the last time, Jesus in a private conversation talks to his disciples as they walk along the road about his upcoming trial, his persecution, death, and subsequent resurrection. That's listed in these three verses. Okay? The very next story, verse 20, what is it? 20 to 22, tells of the mother of James and John who come to Jesus asking him for special positions for her two sons in the kingdom. There's a disconnect there. Okay? Um, Matthew 20, 20 to 22. Then the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus with her two sons, but bowed before him and asked him for a favor. What do you want? Jesus asked her. She answered, promise me that these two sons of mine will sit at your right and left when you are king. You don't know what you're asking for, Jesus answered the sons. Can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? We can, they answered. Six days later, both fled when the mob came to arrest Jesus. Okay? Why were they unprepared? Had Christ done a poor job? They had preconceived notions of what he meant by it. They were looking at what, everything he said through their own upbringing, their own lenses. They didn't quite get it. So the event was wrong. Okay. It was sudden. It was unplanned in their minds. Christ knew it was going to happen. Okay. He even did things. If you look at, at the triumphal entry and everything, he did things to purposely 
create a stir. You know, he rode a donkey, you know, from Bethany down into, into Jerusalem. You know, the, the army, the Roman army was on the other side of town. He was coming in this side of town. Why did he choose that? You know, their self-assessment was wrong. They weren't ready. Okay? You know, um, this week, I had a little, well, I was studying this lesson. I was, um, I said, oh, I'm late for work. You know, I had to go in for a different, I was home and had to go back and whatnot. And so I went in front of the mirror and it was like, I couldn't get my hair straight. Okay? Now, I have less of a trouble now than I used to because I have less of it. But, um, you know, and finally I looked and it's, oh, that's a smudge on the mirror. Okay? (laughs) If you have the wrong law, if you have the wrong mirror, you also will not be able to get things straight. Okay? If you have the law of love, you have one approach to it. If you have the law of selfishness, you have another. Two events, one creates fear, one creates... We've waited for him. Okay? Cultural preparedness. Christ tried to do some cultural preparedness. The story of the woman of Tyre and Sidon in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Um, and at the end of this little story, they all learned their lesson and made friends with all the non-Jewish people and welcomed them into their homes. No. Peter got into trouble with his fellow church members when he welcomed Cornelius' messengers into his Jewish home and later ate with them. If you read the whole story, they, they, you know, he was brought before a trial, a church trial. And don't you find it different... I've just been thinking lately how how differently God communicated His deficit to him. Just Cornelius, Cornelius, he sent an angel and said, "I want you to go to this street, ask for this guy, and bring him here because he has a message I want you to, him to say." So it's blunt and straight up. But for Peter, he had to go through, you know, bringing down this sheet of stuff, you know, that then say three times, three times to get through to him that these are not. The scum of the earth that are coming. You really need to, to minister to them. There was a whole different approach to them. Very, very, you know, dramatic for Peter. For the other, for Cornelius, to go do this. He did. Luke fourteen twenty five to 33. Once when large crowds of people were going along with Jesus, he turned and said to them, Those who come to me cannot be my disciples unless they love me more than they love father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and themselves as well. Those who do not carry their own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. If one of you is planning to build a tower, you sit down first and figure out what it will cost to see if you have enough money to finish the job. If you don't, you will not be able to finish the tower and after laying the foundation and all who see what happened will make fun of you. You began to build but can't finish the job, they'll say. If a king goes out with 10,000 men to fight another king who comes against him with 20,000 men, he will sit down first and decide if he's strong enough to face that other king. If he isn't, he will send messengers to meet the other king to ask for terms of peace while he's still a long way off. In the same way, concluded Jesus, none of you can be my disciple unless you give up everything you have. Talk about a paradigm shift. 
other ways he prepares us. 2 Corinthians 1.4 He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Preparedness for worship or communion or atonement. Matthew 5.23-24 So if you're about to offer your gift to God at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go at once and make peace with your brother and then come back and offer your gift to God. Why does this work? Does this work in the family? Well, I found it interesting that he didn't say if you've had something to get somebody, go and you know, ask forgiveness and make it right. He says if you know somebody has something against you, go and make it right. I thought that was a little backward, but I think... Breakups and relationships are, are um, if they are unresolved, it's hard to have a good relationship with God or any, anybody else because you have not reached out in peace to that person and tried to make it right. I think it stymies your actual relationship with God as well. Well, the people he was speaking to were kind of distorting the whole act of giving and making a show of it and neglecting their families in exchange for, for giving to the temple and things like that. So I think he was trying to point out, you're not getting what giving is all about. Preparation for the second coming. First Thessalonians 5, 1-7 There is no need to write, you friends, about the times and occasions when these things will happen. For you know yourselves... For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. How many times have we heard that? Is that just bring warm cockles to your heart or whatever that thing is, that little statement? Okay? When people say everything is quiet and safe, then suddenly destruction will hit them. It will come as suddenly as pains that come upon a woman in labor. And people will not escape. And now we should say amen. Um, The next verse, but you friends are not in darkness. And the day should not take you by surprise like a thief. All of you are people who belong to the light, who belong to the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness, so then we should not be sleeping like others. We should be awake and sober. It is at night when people sleep. It is at night when they get drunk. You know, what is your gut reaction to the first portion of that statement that I read? For many years, this topic just brought anxiety to me. I just couldn't stand it. Okay? Fear, dread, or whatever. I had an illustration, though, of a slow awakening in my heart that's been transport. My wife went to North Carolina this this week to take some details about her mother aging and all that sort of stuff. Um, I didn't know when she was going to come back. She had tasks to do, but, you know, all of them I didn't know. She said she'd be coming back shortly, but it wasn't specific. The timetable was somewhat indicating that her return was coming back by the weekend. I wasn't sure. But you know what? I was looking forward to it. I was not fearful. I did little things that I thought she would appreciate when she got back. I didn't forget to water the plants, but anyway, that's a different story. Um... (laughs) You know, if truly I knew God as my friend and talked to him that way, 
looked at the signs of his coming as something pointing to something good, I need not be afraid. But I personally concentrate on the negative. That's me. Okay? Um, And I always have to remind myself that it's the devil and not God that is the accuser of the brethren. Okay? Um, And I don't know where FH is. Mrs. White, this is, you know, probably something healing. I don't know what it is. Um, The Pharisees and the religious teachers so misrepresented the character of God that it was necessary for Christ to come to the world to represent the Father. Through the subtility of Satan, men and women were led to charge upon God satanic attributes. But the Savior swept back the thick darkness which Satan had rolled up before the throne of God in order that he might intercept the bright rays of mercy and love which came from God to us. In plain language, the Savior taught the world that the tenderness, the compassion, the love that he manifested toward humanity were the very attributes of his Father in heaven. Whatever doctrine of grace he presented, whatever promise of joy, whatever deed of love, whatever divine attraction he exhibited, had its source in the Father of all. In the person of Christ, we behold the eternal God engaged in an enterprise of boundless mercy toward the fallen race. It's from FH 32, but also from Signs of Times, 1894. You know, unfortunately, I think the gist of the, of the lesson this week, the quarterly, is kind of fear of failure, fear of inadequate preparation, and fear of the future, okay? But I tend to concentrate on that, and so I'll pick that out whenever I read something. So I have to back up, just reread it, etc. Let's go to Sabbath afternoon's lesson. Um, If I can find it, here it is. The last uh, paragraph of Sabbath afternoon's lesson says, This week... Let's look at some of the changes that sooner or later, on one way or another, most of us face and how these changes can impact family life. To me, I read that as being a negative. Okay? Instead of, let's get ready. You know, I mean, that's just, it's just how, I, how I read it. Anyway. All right. So, um, let's go to Sunday. Um, it's about being unprepared. Again, that's not something that I like to dwell on. Okay? It gives us 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 to read. Verse 13, though, t- says that God is faithful. God protects us. God is with us. So, you know, it's not all bad. You know, they also include the quote, which I, I like, the greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will be, not be bought or sold, men who in, their, uh, in those souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as a needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right through the heavens fall. May that we be that way. Then they list three failures of relationship. Okay? I wish they would have ended up with three successes. They're in the Bible. We can find them. 
You know, 2 Timothy 1-2, Paul, at the end of his life, writing one of the last letters that he wrote to Timothy, says, But I am still full of confidence, because I know whom I have trusted. And I am sure that he is able to keep safe until that day what he has entrusted to me. What a difference. Okay? All right. Um, Yes. Um, I just wanted to say this this is an interesting combination of fear and non fear. In Isaiah 35, uh, starting with verse 3, it says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance and with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And yet, you know, when I get a passage like that, I have to say, uh oh, okay. And so I get out olive tree or whatever that that Bible app is and start reading all 16 translations, you know, because it's amazing how people understand the same um, verbiage. Okay. Um, Anyway. In terms of you're in a prison, we're we're kind of like the prisoner of war camp of the universe, if you will. We're prisoners of Satan. And um, when I think of it, I think of the Navy SEALs coming in and rescuing, you know, prisoners of war or something. What They come with a vengeance to set you free. And that's what you want. You want somebody to come in strong enough to defeat your enemy and save you. Thanks. I like it. (laughs) Coming with a vengeance. All right. On Monday's lesson, preparing for marriage. Um, As many many of you know, um, my daughter's getting married in three weeks tomorrow. (laughs) You know, 28th. So, you know, getting ready for marriage and whatnot. And thinking back when I got married... You know, he was saying that we had no clue when we become parents. I had no clue when I got married. You know, I'm driving away from the little church up on Sand Mountain, coming toward Chattanooga. And I think, what have I done? That's one of the better things I did in my life. Let's let me just say that. So anyway, um, in the um, in the Monday's lesson, they give us a couple um, criteria for being ready for marriage. The two texts are now. Get this: First Corinthians thirteen, right? I mean, I mean that's that's what you you are, right? This, this is a perfect re- representation of First Corinthians thirteen, right? And then Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And as you know, that's the gifts of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. You know, how, do you, how do you remember that, ta- that passage? How do you remember all those gifts? It's love, joy, peace, and a package of figs. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Ooh, gee, goodness? Oh, I said that. Gentleness and self-control. You know, package of figs. Anyway, um, so the next paragraph after the um, text say, preparation for marriage must begin with us personally and individually. At the same time, we need to look carefully at our future spouse to see if he or she would be a good complement for us. Is he or she, or she a hard worker? Does he or she have a bad temper? Do we ha- share common beliefs? How do my family and friends feel about my future spouse? Am I relying on faith or on feelings alone? 
The answers to these questions can mean a future of happiness or a lifetime of sorrow. Now, last week, Tim gave a list of, I think it was 10 things that you should do when you're dating or considering a life partner. And I think that's a great thing for Tim. Okay? I will have to admit that I looked more at the package than I did at the contents of the package when I was, getting, when I was dating. That's just how, how we are. Okay? Um, if you need those 10 steps or whatever, go back and look at Tim's lesson for last week. It's in the PDF, etc. Um, you know, the process of select, the process of selection for a life partner. Um, where do you look? Now, I have to tell you something about me. Um, I like to dumpster dive. Okay. There is a house being built on Igu Gap that I, tr- I go by every day, okay? In building this house, they took a bulldozer and uprooted this um, fruit tree that was there. And so I went by, as they were putting on the subfloor for this house, they had the, the block you know, foundation thing, and they were putting on the subfloor. And um, I pulled in in my truck, and I, the foreman was there, and I said, um, do you mind if I have a piece of wood? And he said, what? <laughs> I said, this tree out here, you've got a couple chunks of wood. Do you mind if I take a chunk of wood? And he says, oh, you can have any of that you want. You know, take two. You know. <laughs> and so I've, I'm trying to make a bowl out of it on a lathe, etc., you know. And so it's free, it's whatever, it's, it's, it's garbage, but it's good for me because I'm going to do something good with it, okay? I've also, I mean, the desk that I sat at for 30 years in my home was a desk that I got beside the road. It didn't have any legs to it at the time when I got it, at the leg, you know, repaired the legs back, etc. and whatnot. It's been a good desk. Had a desk and return and everything. The chair I found in a different place. Now I tried to donate that chair to the Samaritan Center. You know, I'm done with a chair. It was sitting in my shop and it was taking up space, and I wanted a, a tool to go there. And so okay, I'm going to get, I'm going I'm to take the desk and chair. And my wife says, No, I'll call them. They'll haul it off. Okay. And they came and they wanted the desk. They didn't want my chair. I've been using that chair for thirty years. It's been a good chair. It's comfortable. It was torn a little bit on the corner, but it's a good chair, you know? I did put four wheels on it, you know? That's the only cost to me for that 30 years was four wheels. So, so I like to get discards and stuff like that, okay? Um, I was going on Jenkins Road toward my house just um, last night, coming back from downtown, and someone has cut down more trees. And they have stacked sections of wood out beside the road. And I was like, ooh, ooh. You know, I, um... But, you know, I've got this wedding coming up. And at my back door are... There's a stump that's about this big around. And about this tall. Weighs about 300 pounds. There's two smaller stumps... I've gotten the bark off a two, and my wife doesn't want any more wood. (laughs) 
Um, you know, but in going back to the lesson, um, you have to be careful, though, where you look. Would you dumpster dive for your spouse? I work with, predominantly in our office, we have female employees. And if you don't have employee problems this week, you will have them next week. But um, these, these sweet young things um, dumpster dive for their, their significant others. They do not choose locations that are ideal for finding quality people. <laughs> you, can, you can take that wherever you want but we need to prepare ourselves when we are looking for others okay so anyway yes I saw a survey one time that said that 75% of people find their spouse at church and the next highest category was school that's not a bad idea okay but that's not where these young ladies are getting them <laughs> But also, if you have something, uh, some real issues yourself, and you really, it would be good to come to the Lord and focus on getting healthy from your own background. Because from what I've seen, you know, if you have a particular wound from growing up, you could go in a room of 500 other people, 500 people, and you would gravitate towards the one that matches that wound. Inevitably, you'll go back and create home, even if it wasn't a good one. And so sometimes before you go out looking, there's some work that needs to be done to make you healthy and resolve some of your issues so you won't pick people that match that wound so much. Can any of you think of a Bible text? It has to do with woodworking. The beam out of your eye before you get the splinter out of someone else's. Okay. One of the things that Tim said last week, which I thought is very appropriate, is to have a healthy relationship, it takes two healthy individuals. You know? And we cannot be responsible for the health of someone else, um, fortunately or unfortunately. However, that's just how it is. So, anyway. They say men, that men marry women hoping they won't change, and they do. Women marry men hoping they will change, and they won't. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we'll go to Tuesday. <laughs> Preparing for parenting. How many are parents? Quite a few. Okay. How were you prepared for the role? Watching how your parents did it. Yeah. You know, they have parenting classes. And, you know, this week, I just thought for the fun of it, I would go online. You know, my, my kids, you know, my daughter's 26, I think. Anyway, she's old. Um, <laughs> she's mature now. More mature than she was a few years back. More mature than I was when I got married. Okay. Let's put it, put it that way. Um, and my son is married and, and whatnot. And so I'm a little bit farther on down the line. And, um, you know, looking at some of the parenting websites that are out there, it's appalling. The source of their information is I don't know what. 
um, the values that some of the parenting websites have are things that I don't think make for good society. As we've already mentioned in choosing a life partner, maturity of self is probably more important than lots of other things in raising a child. Okay? Fortunately, the Lord delayed our, our children for 17 years. Okay? Because I know I was not prepared when we first got married to... And even then, 17 years later, I don't think I was ready. But anyway, um, I've, I've wondered about... In, in Genesis, it talks about, and he was 300 years old, and then he had a child, you know? And I thought that's probably about right. <laughs> yes? You're better parents when you're older. You just don't have the energy. <laughs> you, you don't have the energy to try to restrain them or whatever to, you know. Anyway, um, who do you take as an authority for parenting plans and values? You know, patients and, and the families um, amaze me with their goals and their beliefs, their values and their expectations of their children. It's, anyway, reading the last paragraph um, of Tuesday's lesson, it says, um, this is from the Adventist home, if before the birth of her child, she is self-indulgent, if she is selfish, impatient, and exacting, these traits will be reflected in the disposition of the child. Thus, many children have received as a birthright almost unconquerable tendencies to evil. You know, I used to read the, the um, Ten Commandments, and it says, and to the third and fourth generation. Okay? And I couldn't figure that out. It's genetics. You know, Tim has presented data where they uh, altered the diet of lab rats, and it will make a color change in the hair of these lab rats. And then they change back the diet to the original diet, and it continues for three or four generations. This is genetics. This is not God saying, I'm going to do it. He's warning us about what the consequences have for our offspring. You know, I deal with a lot of um, damaged children, and, and autism is a very um, common component of some of these things that I take care of. I take care of the, the bones, and glad that someone else is trying to take care of something else. Um, but looking at autism, you know, what is the cause of autism? And I will, right now, if you have an autistic child, I, I, I apologize. I'm sorry that you do. Um, I'm not trying to blame anyone for that. But looking at what we know about autism and the risk, or whatever, autism, one of the risks of autism is the age of the father at the time of um, conception. From animal studies, stress of the mother during pregnancy will increase autistic tendencies. Environmental exposures, uh, especially uh, phthalates, increases the risk of autism. Geography. California, North Carolina, there's five states that have much higher rates of autism than other 
states. Um, now, to some degree, that can be biased. And that is, if the state provides funding for diagnosis and treatment, you're going to have a higher rate. But even taking into that account, that doesn't explain the higher rate in these five states. So, genetics. If one, if one twin has autism, the other twin is much more likely to have autistic tendencies or the spectrum. So, um, genetics has so strong effect in epigenetics of, of what happens in our lives, etc. Some of those things can be changed, but some of them cannot, etc. Um, all right. Wednesday's lesson, preparing for old age. Can you prepare for it? <laughs> Yourself. I mean, I, I, my patients say this every every week. Someone says it because of skin cancer. It doesn't reflect what you did last last week. It reflects what you did in your youth. And they say invariably, if I'd have known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> live the life that God gives you. You know, Martin Luther Martin Luther King Jr. Um, said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper. He should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Here is where the model of 1 Corinthians 13 that we talked about before in Galatians 5, 22 and um, 23 come into play. By beholding, we become changed. And that is a process that's not going to happen all of a sudden. It's by living our lives as young people and middle-aged, as we grow old. Old age hopefully will happen. Okay? Yeah. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 All of us then reflect the glory of God with uncovered faces, And that same glory coming from the Lord, who is the Spirit, transforms us into His likeness in an ever greater degree of glory. Or, Romans 6, 1 through 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to live in sin so that God's grace will increase? Certainly not. We have died to sin. How then can we keep on going living in it? For surely you know that when we were baptized into union with Christ Jesus, we were baptized into union with his death. By our baptism, then, we are buried with him and shared his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from death by the glorious power of the Father, so also we might live a new life. For since we have become one with him in dying as he did, in the same way we shall be one with him by being raised to life as he was. And we know that our old being has been put to death with Christ on his cross in order that the power of the sinful self might be destroyed so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Mrs. White um, has a statement from Reviewer and Herald, uh, May 19, 1885. If we make God our trust, if we have it in our power to control... Oh, sorry, let's start again. If we make God our trust, we have it in our power to control the mind in these things. Through continued exercise, 
it will become strong to battle with internal foes and subdue self until there is complete transformation and the passions, appetite, and will are brought into perfect subjection. Then there will be daily piety at home and abroad, and when we engage in labor for souls, a power will attend our efforts. The humble Christian will have seasons of devotion which are not spasmodic, fitful, or superstitious, but calm and tranquil, deep, constant, and earnest. The love of God, the practice of holiness, will be pleasant when there is perfect surrender to God. Or, another passage which I thought was good. Um, But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that He will abundantly pardon, He adds, as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 7-9. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It's the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalms 51.10 And again he says, As far as the east from the west, so hath he removed our transgressions from us. Psalms 103.12 And that's Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 114. All right. So, last five minutes or so, and we'll talk about death. The page on the, uh, for Thursday's lesson is a little bit, a little negative, okay? That's my thing. I think it's injected with a little bit of fear. Um, if you read the second paragraph many times, many times, of course, death comes unexpectedly and tragically. How many men, women, and even children woke up one morning only before the sunset to close their eyes, not in sleep, but in death? Or woke up one morning and before the sun set had lost a family member. Now that's true. Okay. But, you know, how do you approach death? I'd like to read you a famous quote. Okay. Get your reaction to it. It's from Hunter S. Thompson. Life, life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. (laughs) He committed suicide at 67. Many times, while I'm in the emergency room, I have seen the effects of choices just like that. Okay? Okay. You know, the last eight words of a redneck. Hey, Bubba, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> we are witnesses of people who've tried to flaunt the laws of gravity, Newton's laws of motion, and the laws of good health. <sighs> I 
And most of the individuals who lived a life as in that previous statement don't come sliding in with a, a yell of triumph. At least the ones I've come across. And yet, the fear of death is almost universal. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since the children, as he calls them, are people of flesh and blood, Jesus himself became like them and shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death, he might destroy the devil who has the power over death. And in this way, set free those who were slaves all their lives because of their fear of death. Or, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26, Then the end will come. Christ will overcome all spiritual rulers and authorities and powers and will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. For Christ must rule until God defeats all enemies and puts them under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated will be death. I just love this verse, uh, Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. It says, The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. And I have a cousin who, because of heart issues, when she was young, she didn't expect to live till past her teen years, She's died numerous times in her life, had been resuscitated. And she said, I'm here to say death is easy. It's living that's hard. It's easy to just kind of go. <laughs> My mother died of um, renal failure, got sick at the end, and dis- made some decisions about how she was going to end her life, how, how her life was going to end, you know. And, um, you know, as, as she was going through the process, she says, this is hard. This is really hard. At her funeral, I read something from William Cullen Bryant. He wrote a poem called Thanatopsis. Thanatopsis meaning death. Okay, he had wrote a poem. I don't have time here to read the whole poem. I like the last paragraph. And this is what I read at her funeral. I read it also at my dad's funeral five months later. So live that when thy summons comes to join the innumerable caravan, which moves to that mysterious realm, where each shall take his chamber in the silent halls of death, thou go not like the quarry slave at night, scourged to his dungeon, but sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust. Approach thy grave like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams. I think that a Christian can truly do that. Unfortunately, many of us, as we, we age, we lose some of our, our capabilities. Okay? And we don't lay down in confident trust because we have lost some of those physical and mental abilities that happen. My mother-in-law is going through that process. She's now getting a little confused and whatnot and is not got everything going. And I, I, um, but she's lived a long life believing in whom she trusts. And um, I think that's the best we can do. Um, some of us will die suddenly, you know, 
I'm getting old. I'm the old guy in the office. And they keep asking, hey, when are you going to retire? <laughs> I don't know if to take that as a compliment that they want me to keep working or a not that it's, it's, it's like, when are you going to leave? Um, but, you know, some of us die suddenly. My father, you know, he, up until two years before his death, he was still planting fruit trees for I don't know whom. Um, he'd dig a hole four feet wide, four feet deep, fill it full of compost and limbs and this thing and that thing and everything else, etc. and whatnot. And he was 91. And um, over the last two years, he kind of dwindled down, etc. And he suddenly died when he was um, one day, was totally unexpected, etc. Um, but I can say that with all honesty that he lived a good life and he was, you know, whatever. Um, he was forever damaged by World War II. But, um, you know, we all have things too. But how do you approach death? Um, you know, it echoes the statement that I previously read uh, by Paul. Second um, Timothy 1.12 But I am still full of confidence because I know whom I have trusted and I am sure that he is able to keep safe until that day what he has entrusted to me. I think that's where we're at. We have to know who we trust. There are few of us who will arrive like Moses to their death with their eyes undimmed and their stamina not waned. But we so live. You know. Anyway. All right. I better quit. Close. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of talking about you. You are an amazing God. May we see a glimpse of that every day. May we help others to see you more clearly. May we honor you in how we live, how we choose, and how we work and do go about our daily lives, whatever that is. Amen.